You're listening to The Progressivist Podcast, and I'm your host, Joe Lorenz. Join me each episode as we discuss how to use our collective voices to activate a progressive world founded upon climate, civil, and racial justice. Now, today's guest is Jen Winston. Jen is a writer, creative director, and bisexual whose work bridges the intersection of politics, sex, and technology, and has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, on CNN, and more. Jen is passionate about unlearning and creating work that helps others do the same. With her new book, Greedy, Notes from a Bisexual Who Wants Too Much, which comes out October 5th, 2021, Jen takes us inside her journey of self-discovery in a really provocative and laugh-out-loud way, attempting to make sense of herself, her bisexuality, and, well, everything. Jen lives in Brooklyn with her partner, dogs, and iPhone, and we're so delighted that she is with us today on the Progressivist Podcast right in time for Bisexual Awareness Week 2021. So hello to our old friend, Jen. Hello. Great to be here. So happy to be here. So happy to have you. Now, let's kick off and... I was hoping that you could share your coming out story with us and perhaps give your thoughts on the difficulty of coming out specifically for bi people, please. Well, I came out a little over two years ago. Like I have not been out for very long, but Mm -hmm. I have been bisexual forever. It is not a phase. Hashtag not a phase. Um, (laughs) And um, I ultimately like I think my coming out story is just like a bunch of failed attempts at figuring out what my identity was. It was a lot of like push and pull, like, am I bisexual? Am I not? And so, I mean, it's not really like the linear coming out story of like, I gathered all my parents and Mm. loved ones in a room and like, you know, they hugged me or didn't, you know, that's not, that wasn't really the case. Right. Um, but when, but two years ago I did officially come out and I did that through Instagram, which is like super embarrassing. But for me, that was the way that I could make it feel real. Mm. Um, because I knew I had known that I was bisexual for a very long time. Like I had known that that word meant something to me and it felt like the right word. Ultimately, like it never felt like a big enough deal to really say it out loud. I was attracted to men uh, in a general sense, and I had only ever dated cis men. Like that always felt like a real attraction. It wasn't something I was faking. Mm -hmm. And since it was so much easier to just like keep doing that rather than like come out and, you know, go through the whole shebang, I just like kind of stuck with that. And I, I always felt like I wasn't fully like being myself or like there was part of my self I needed to like tap into, mm. um, and, and that I needed to like talk about really, but I never felt like I had the proof or like the experiences to back it up. And I think a lot of bi people run into the same issue where there's like this assumption that we, we aren't or it's a self-assumption that we aren't queer enough or that we don't deserve Mm. to come out. And that's just something that I hear from so many other people is, is something that they relate to, or one of the reasons that they put off coming out uh, in the first place. So um, I mean, I, I guess that's my coming out story. Uh, I posted an Instagram after 30 years of just like mulling it over and not being sure. Uh, And then I was like, you know, I am sure I've like done the work on myself and I'm absolutely aware that this is the right word. Uh, And it just has never felt like something I should say out loud. And then one day I just said it out loud on a public 
digital stage and that was it. I remember the post. I ah. remember the- <laughs> yeah, and we were both like, hey, cool. But your use of the word proof is interesting to me. Can you kind of delve into that a bit more? Absolutely. There's like a, a meme. Uh, it's like, gather around bisexuals and like everybody have your complete list of everyone you've ever hooked up with ready to go. And like, (laughs) you know, there's this idea that you can't be bisexual unless you've like quote unquote proven it Mm. or like hooked up with people of other genders Mm. and you have these queer sexual experiences Mm. under your belt. But that is a really, I mean, it's like a really messed up way to gatekeep a sexuality because it's not like in order to identify as gay or lesbian, you have to necessarily have had those experiences. Like people believe you if you say you have like urges, you know, I mean, but it's, I mean, this is still something that those, those uh, communities face Mm. when coming out is like, well, how do you know, you know, Mm. there's like, you have to kind of justify yourself. And with bisexuality, it gets even more complicated because part of the way that, gay and lesbian sexualities can justify themselves is by being like, I'm not attracted to this gender. Uh, Even though like that doesn't really answer that question because it kind of overlooks asexual identity or Mm. the idea that you might not be attracted to any gender with bisexuality, because you have that, the heteronormative attraction to fall back on. There's this sense that you need to have this incredible attraction to other genders Mm. in order to say it out loud. And then there's also this assumption that everyone is a little bit bisexual, which I used to think was like a nice thing to say, because it Mm. like helped destigmatize bisexuality and it made me feel less like weird about talking about it. Mm. But then I realized that it was actually making me feel like I had nothing special going on. And Mm. like, if everyone's bisexual, then like no one is bisexual. Why even say it? Totally get it. That's very interesting and very well put. Actually, you've also just prompted a quick side question that I would love your thoughts on, please. And it's on language. Um, For myself, as a cisgendered heterosexual woman, I don't usually use the word queer as I'm not sure if I should. And because I feel like it's not my word. But as a bisexual woman, what are your personal thoughts on people outside the LGBTQIA plus community using the word queer? Yeah, I mean, thank you for asking that. I'm I'm I don't want to be the definitive resource on of this, course. but I do think that uh the stigma around that has to do with people thinking that queer is a bad word. I mean, it used to be a bad word. It right. like, began as a slur, but I like it. And I identify as queer. Yeah, great. And I I've asked several queer people and they've all had the same answer. They said, "I am not the master of this word, but I like it and I'm very yes. happy for you to use it." I think there needs to be like an acknowledgement of the fact that it is, that it does have that background. So I really like that you asked the question, but like personally, I'm a hundred percent comfortable with it. I'm not sure that everyone would be, but also not everyone uses that term or enjoys reclaiming that term. So it's definitely like nuanced, but I'm cool with it. Okay, great. Thank you. I very much appreciate your perspective on that. And Also, I appreciate you mentioning nuance, which is a hugely necessary part of understanding and embracing inclusivity. So let's go a little bit further here, if we can. Do do non-bi people from both straight or queer communities, do they understand bisexuality? I mean, (laughs) 
I don't know. I I mean, I'm not even sure a lot of bisexuals understand bisexuality. Hmm. I think um, bisexuality is a complicated concept, both because of the word, which implies that it's binary and like reinforces the gender binary, which it does not. Hmm. Um, Bisexuality is the opposite of monosexuality, uh, which monosexuality, like straight and gay identities fall under. Hmm. Basically, that's the assumption that you're supposed to be attracted to just one gender forever, essentially, Mm. with no room for fluidity or nuance. Uh, So that's monosexuality. And bisexuality is really the opposite of that. So uh, I define it as being attracted to more than one gender. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think a lot of non-bi people understand even just that basic thing that bisexuality Mm -hmm. isn't binary. In fact, it's like the rejection of a binary system that's been built out of heteropatriarchy. Right. Um, like it's, it's the rejection of the assumption that like gender roles create these sexual identities for us that fulfill these boxes that we have to fall into. Mm. And for me, bisexuality has, is really a lens to look at the world and see all those by bi- like to break down all those binaries. So uh, once I kind of started learning all of that, I was like, Oh wait, bisexuality is cool. Uh, and I, and I like it um, because for a while I, I thought I was bisexual, but I had so much shame around it because I thought that it was like fake. And I thought that everyone was bisexual. Uh, and I just really thought that it wasn't a, something I wanted to be. And mm ultimately I'm, I'm glad that, that I was able to learn that. And I learned a lot of that. I should cite my source here from, uh, the writer Shiri Eisner, mm-hmm. who, uh, wrote the book by notes for a bisexual revolution, which is a fantastic book of queer theory, uh, bisexual theory, really, that basically talks about the idea that bisexuality has never been a binary idea. Mm. And, um, I think there's a lot of conversation about like pansexuality. I've had people literally ask me like why I can't be pansexual instead. And I'm like, well, I identify as bisexual. And for a while I did, I thought I was like, I wrote in my Instagram bio, like Mm. bi slash pan, Mm. um, because the Instagram bio is like the holy document. But, um, (laughs) and I, I thought that, you know, I, I did that just to like appease the masses and to show right. that I wasn't thinking about it in a binary sense. Can you um, explain but I really just, just to sure. listeners what pansexuality is, what that phrase means? Yes. Um, so pansexuality is, I mean, it actually has a very, very similar meaning to bisexuality. And mm-hmm. as I see it, the difference is very nuanced. For me, pansexuality feels like it is attraction to all genders, uh, regardless of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas bisexuality is like the potential to be attracted to more than one gender in different ways, right. uh, and different degrees at whatever time, maybe simultaneously, maybe separately for me, like gender has always been such a huge part of my life. When I wrote my book, I actually had no idea that I would talk about womanhood so much in my book. Mm. Cause I'm like, I feel like I've moved past that subject sort of (laughs) like in the realm of how I think about gender now, but it just felt so interconnected with my bisexuality and, and the interactions I've had, especially with regards to sex. And Mm -hmm. so there was no, there's no way I can say that I'm attracted to people regardless of gender, like gender plays a massive role in the way I navigate the world Mm -hmm. and my personal like ethos. And so that definition of pansexuality, I don't relate to it. 
but the end result is the same. I mean, I'm attracted to like everyone and (laughs) pansexual people are also attracted to everyone. The biggest issue with the word bisexuality is that people think it's binary. Right. And there are so many like bi scholars who have commented on this and like what that bi prefix actually means and why it's there. Ultimately, the community that it created has always embraced non-binary identities. There was a bisexual magazine uh, from the early 90s, which I'm like desperately looking for a copy of if you can find (laughs) one. Um, But it was called Anything That Moves. And they wrote a manifesto about bisexuality. And in that they what they a title. One. I love it. I know. I know. I was it, I actually found out about it while I was coming up with the titles for my book. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> they figured it out. Um, but yeah, the, in that uh, magazine, they wrote a manifesto about bisexuality and they wrote something along the lines of don't assume uh, that bi people are only attracted to one gender. In fact, don't assume that there are only two genders. Mm-hmm. And that was in the early 90s. Brenda Howard played a really prominent role within Pride at Stonewall mm-hmm. and was bisexual. There's just been so many bi activists whose work has often been overlooked because they've often been cast as either straight or gay, mm-hmm. uh, including like Freddie Mercury was a bisexual, mm-hmm. but is often remembered as a gay person. When um, Remy Malek accepted the Oscar for that Mm. role, he said that Freddie Mercury was gay. That's what we call bi erasure. But there's just so many narratives like that about bi people. And I think actually that movie is a great example because you could even look at that movie and be like, oh, he's gay. Because the way that they show his bisexuality Mm. is as a behavior and rather than an identity, like they show his uh, relationship with the woman and then they show his relationships with men, right. but they never have him say or like stake the claim I'm bisexual. And so there's actually this problem that comes up in a lot of bisexual representation where because the easiest way for writers to show, not tell bisexuality is to like show people hooking up with multiple genders. Mm. Um, there's this assumption that bisexuality is a behavior rather than an identity. And it really affects by people's sense of self, like non-binary people don't have to look a certain way. Right. right. So in order to see non-binary identity reflected on screen, like we really need people to tell us that they're non-binary because non-binary people can look any kind of way. And so mm-hmm. that, that creates a challenge for writers because the idea of being like, I am non-binary is like boring TV. Like Mm. I will be the first to admit that like that's eye rolly, but (laughs) the same is true with bisexuality because when we want to show these fluid identities on screen, we have to find creative ways to say, that's what we're talking about. There's a lot of erasure that comes from us being afraid to like stake those claims or say those things outright. Okay, so let's talk by privilege. What is it? And, you know, is it a myth? Yes, bisexual privilege is a myth that people say exists, um, but it it's not a thing. Um, and I thought it was a thing for so long. And it's another reason that I didn't want to come out because I was mm-hmm. like, oh, all I'm going to be doing is like flaunting that I have this like straight passing privilege and like trying to take attention and 
from actual queer people and taking up space in the process. Um, but the the reason why people think bi privilege is a thing is because they think that if if you are able to like quote unquote pass as straight, mm-hmm. you can have all these heterosexual privileges, uh, which to an extent that aspect of it is true. If you are in a relationship with like a straight passing relationship, Mm -hmm. you do experience privileges of being in a straight passing relationship. But if you're bisexual, you're, you're still not straight, even Mm -hmm. when you're in that relationship. And the effect of, of saying that there's bi privilege or like that you you're getting bi privilege is it makes fewer bi people want to come out. And of course, like we can all agree that there's like a ton of, you know, mental health challenges that come from staying closeted for, from keeping LGBTQ people closeted, Mm. but with bisexuality specifically, uh, there are huge like mental health inequities between bi people and straight and, and gay people, um, like bisexual adults reported double the rate of depression and higher rates of binge drinking than compared to heterosexual adults. Mm. Um, and those numbers are higher for bi people who are trans or by people of color and mm-hmm. disabled by people. Mm-hmm. Um, only 44% of bi youth said that they have an adult that they can turn to uh, compared with 54% of lesbian and gay youth and 79% of uh, straight identifying respondents. Um, and then uh, only 5% of bi youth reported being very happy compared to 21% of, of straight youth. And there, there are tons of these other statistics. Like there's one that says that, uh, I wish I had the exact numbers, but bisexual women experience sexual assault at a much higher rate. It's like almost more than double, Whoa. uh, either straight women or lesbian women, which that, that one really, really shocked me. Yeah. And it took me a really long time. Yeah. It took me so long to be like, uh, oh, this is like, I, I couldn't understand like what bisexuality like had to do with it. Hmm. You know, I was like there, I was like, bisexuality isn't a big enough deal to like actually influence this enough. It was my own internalized biphobia. I later like realized, but I just didn't think that being bi could actually like result in more sexual assaults. And I had this stat in my, in an early draft of my book, I think it, it's still in there. Um, But an early editor of mine asked me to kind of unpack what, what the, the causal relationship was between bisexuality and sexual assault. Mm. And I realized that like with most other statistics about identity. Like if you say like LGBTQ plus people experience homelessness at a higher rate um, than straight people, Um, you don't have to like, we don't have to explain why, Mm. because like you can, you can guess why, like there are many reasons, like families kicking people out, uh, you know, other uh, access to work, Mm. uh, tons, there are tons of reasons. Um, but that's not really a statistic that's questioned, but Mm. when the statistics have to do with bisexuality as the, the correlating factor, we question them. And even I question them. Mm. Um, and with like, with the sexual assault one for, it took me a really long time to think about it and realize that like, I, I found that statistic weirdly validating because I felt like I had experienced such higher rates of sexual assault than 
than other people that I knew. Mm. Um, and I realized it's because I put myself in a lot of really bad situations because I wanted to just like figure something out about myself, but I didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, and there's also higher rates of binge drinking for by individuals. And so, um, th- that, you know, was another factor in the sexual assaults and like, it just really added up with my life. And once I was able to like unpack that, I was like, oh yeah, by privilege, not a thing. The like bisexuality definitely is a causal feature for all of these stats. And ultimately, like I'm getting ahead of myself with the like, <laughs> if this book does one thing <laughs> remark, but but if it does, I hope that it like I hope it helps one bi person come out because coming out can really help you not have to face those questions in unhealthy ways. Having read the book, I am really certain it will do that in a big way. And thank you for unpacking that for us all, as it's extremely valuable to hear. Just while we're on the unpacking, I'd love to hear your thoughts on bi-invisibility in tandem with bi-erasure and how the two actually intersect. I define bi-invisibility as like the phenomenon that happens as a result of bi-erasure. And bi-erasure is like the act of overlooking someone's bisexuality and potentially like assuming that they're straight or assuming that they're, they're gay um, or just not even like mentioning their bisexuality at all or like Mm. ignoring it. Um, And by invisibility is the fact that bi people don't really have a lot of bi role models to look up to. Mm. Like, I mean, I get people like calling me like a bi con (laughs) and um, I am flattered, but like I shouldn't, I mean, I guess now I've written a book on it. So like they can say that, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) but, But I mean, it's shocking to me that I've written like one of very few books about this subject, Mm. uh, in 2021, like this is a massive community of people. It's the biggest, uh, community within the LGBTQ plus community. There have been like over 10 billion like uses of the hashtag bisexual on TikTok. Mm. Um, and that, that number is mentioned in my book. And every single time I, I went to update my manuscript, I had to like increase it because it was just like increasing at an exponential rate. Um, but it, it's shocking to me that there's not more dialogue about this because so many people have questions about whether they're bisexual and mm. um, maybe they've they've felt like they're not allowed to ask those questions or maybe they've asked them and and they've heard that they aren't um, because of a lot of this by invisibility, you know. One of my first like dates after I came out with a woman, mm-hmm. um, she said like, oh, I was by for about three weeks. It'll pass. Oh, my God. And and I was like, but thankfully, I was so secure in my sexuality by that point. But if mm-hmm. I had gone out with her like even six months prior, uh, which I wouldn't have dared bring up. Like I, I did go on dates with women six months before that, and I didn't dare bring up my bisexuality. Mm, um, interesting. but I would not have been able, I would have been like, maybe she's right. Maybe she's right. Right. You know? So like, I just think it, it takes so much self-assuredness to be like, no, this is, this fluid identity is what I am. And also if it changes, that's fine too. Um, because people are so concerned and, um, the idea of fluidity in, in terms of sexuality is a threat to other identities and, and monosexual identities. Mm. Um, especially like 
the hardships that those communities have faced. And so I guess that's also part of the notion of by privilege is like, you're just swooping in here without any of the the history. But mm. as I mentioned, like there's been so many bi activists throughout the LGBTQ plus communities fight for our rights. Mm. And that that's erasure to act like that's something new. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's complete erasure. And it, it all goes back again to your use of the word proof at the beginning. I think that's such a huge takeaway for me. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. just you don't need to prove that you are any kind of sexuality or conforming either way, anyway, every way. It's just who you are. And, you know, there'll probably be plenty of people that read your book, you know, they could be in their seventies and they might just finally say to themselves, holy shit, I think I'm bi. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have to have had any relationships, but that can still be who they identify as. And that would be due to your words. It's very, very interesting. Now, mm-hmm. talking about your book, um, let me start by saying I love the book and the style with which you've written it. It's incredibly approachable. Aww, thank you. You're so welcome. It's just a delight to read. So thank you for writing Aww. it and bringing us into your cool mind and world. So <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Um, now, who did you write the book for and or who needs to read it? I mean, I, I think I wrote the book for a younger version of myself. Um who just really needed to hear everything, like who needed to hear that she was on the right track mm. um, and that she was who she thought she was. Like I needed that confirmation. Um, and actually I'm so happy that I've written the book because now I feel like I've just written the book for my my current self mm. because if I ever have like doubts about my sexuality, which I still do regardless of having written a whole book about bisexuality. <laughs> like that's how internalized this stuff is. Mm. I can like look at it and be like, oh, it's okay, Jen, you're bisexual. You wrote a book on it. Right. Um, but I think that like people who need to read it, I, well, I think my experiences won't be relatable to all bisexual people. And I hope that this book is not like held up as, you know, the only book that like the bi community needs or whatever. Mm. Um, but I do hope some members of the bi plus community relate to it. Um, And I think that it'll mostly be people who've had similar life experiences to me where they've known that they're bisexual, uh, but they've just continually dated cisgender men. Hmm. Um, And that's like just constantly been like, it's been hard to like get out of that. And I think my, my experiences will definitely be most relatable to that community. There's definitely other so many other bisexual experiences, but like another common one is to like come out as gay or lesbian and like later realize that you're bisexual. And and there's like a whole other things mm. um, that comes with that, which is uh, like being looked down upon by the queer community. And um, that's like a, a completely other type of experience that I like cannot speak to. And I mean, mm. there's many intersectional experiences I can't speak to. That's interesting. Um, if people come out as gay or lesbian and then realize that they're bi, then you mentioned that the queer community can kind of be all eye rolling at that. But I can also imagine that the straight community would do the same and there'd be a bit of a, I told you so, he never was or she never was type totally. of. Totally. It was know. a phase confirmed at that point. You know, right. Quote. Which again is just more <laughs> erasure. It's so, yes. so, it's all very circular. Yes, absolutely. Um, what's your favorite part of the book? 
Um, you know what? I'm so embarrassed about my favorite part of the book. It's literally the straightest part of the book um, <laughs> is I think my favorite essay is called The Men Who Ghost Me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like a little vignette about like me getting ghosted. And I just feel like it sums up so much of my dating life. It's very short, um, but it's my favorite essay. And it's funny. I was like pitching essays to news outlets and like uh, I pitched a few of them and of course, that was not the one that was chosen because it's the straight story. And I think it's interesting right. the way that we like try to erase, even erase bisexual people's straight experiences. Like mm. I've thought several times about the fact that I don't think I would have gotten this book deal if I were in a relationship with a man. And like, that's really disheartening because it means we haven't like accepted the fact that you don't need to have that like proof that mm. you're queer. Yes, totally. Going back to the proof again, a really strong theme here, how the need for proof from both queer and straight communities alike may really actually come down to the lack of an intersectional lens. I mean, do you think that inclusivity in the wider queer community is a hurdle or is there a growing sense of community that understands uh, different overlapping identities within it? I think it is a bit of both. Like in, in one of the earlier chapters of my book, uh, I talk about the fact that there are no really bisexual bars and there are a few in Mm. New York. Then there's a few like queer traveling events. Um, And I think it's no coincidence that these traveling events, they're founded by and they center queer and trans black indigenous people of color. There's no coincidence that those are like focused around including specific marginalized groups within the queer community. Hmm. And that's because like binaries in general, as we've been hitting on are such a colonial idea Hmm. that when I, when I think about feeling excluded from queer spaces, what I think about is white queer spaces because there's so much Hmm. homonormativity as they say um, in those spaces where they, they just follow the norms of the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that the queer community is doing a great job toward holding members of the queer community accountable for like doing better in every sense of it, Mm -hmm. like acknowledging whiteness, acknowledging transphobia, and absolutely no one is going to be free until we solve all of those things. I think we've made a lot of progress and I think the queer community has done that better than any wider community um, because it's so immediately apparent how all queer rights come from the fight for racial justice. Like those two things are so intrinsically like bound together. I think the queer community is is a good example to look at, but not a great example right? (laughs) because there's still tons of tons of transphobia, even in trans inclusive spaces. And there's still tons of racism, even in like, allegedly, like racially inclusive spaces. Yeah, right. And so I guess further to those points on how to achieve trans and or racial inclusivity or comprehensive inclusivity, what would be your utopia for queer liberation? I don't know if you asked this question because of a specific chapter in my book. Um, but the <laughs> but there is a chapter in my book about like queer utopia and it's based on the work of uh Jose Esteban Muñoz learning about 
Munoz's work was helpful to realize that like, I wasn't the only queer person in the world. Mm. Um, and like my <laughs> coming out journey was not the be all end all of everything. It was really helpful for me to realize that like, I'm part of something bigger now. Like I owe it to myself and to the world and my queerness in general to honor that and to like, to decenter myself a little bit. And mm-hmm. that made coming out so much easier because I, I thought that it was all about me for so long. And in the chapter where I talk about Munoz's work, it's basically like contrasting uh, me being at a lesbian bar and having like an uncomfortable experience at like a, a white lesbian bar with uh, being at a protest uh, called Brooklyn Liberation, which is a protest in New York um, that's like on, was on its second year this year. Um, mm-hmm. That is uh, essentially about supporting trans people of color, specifically black trans people. And that protest for me really helped me identify that my queerest value of all is abolition mm. and the idea that abolition is is necessary for us to rebuild the world that we long to build. Mm. Um, and so I guess my utopian vision is honestly, it's like what that protest, Brooklyn Liberation, what it pushes us toward, uh, which essentially is not just Black trans lives matter, but like Black trans power matters. And how can we mm. center that? Um, and ultimately, like thinking when you're able to like think about that as as the key to like all liberation, it really helps liberate you from mm. these like gatekeeping conversations that you have with yourself. And so for me, like it was really helpful to get out of my own head and like realize like there are things that are happening that are a huge deal, like mm. the epidemic of violence against black trans women. Like mm. that's a huge deal. And that's way more important to like my liberation as a person than anything about like, am I gay enough or am I straight enough? Right. And I think realizing that I had solidarity around that line of thought with the queer community at large uh, and other people who have privilege, like we all have to use that or else like these internal conversations that we are having with ourselves mean nothing. Like that was a big realization for me. We're right at the end, and I just have a 10 kind of getting to know you short answer questions if you're ready for me to fire them at you. Yes. All right. Um, home city. Bloomington, Indiana. Favorite city. Berlin. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Oh, my God. What a yeah. great city. And Best yes. city in the world. When did you go there? Because queer community there is fantastic. I actually had a whole like long essay about Bergheim in here, but um, my editor made me take it out. Oh, Honestly, damn. it was like gratuitous, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm, that was like good direction from her. But if I could live anywhere in the world, I would live there. Okay. Define your personal style or attitude in three words. Hmm. I'm going to choose three words that are also used to describe bisexual identity because they are my, they, they like align with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, greedy is going to be one. Like <laughs> I want everything and I have no self-control. Um, confused because of my ADHD mm-hmm. and um, offbeat. I always think about this <laughs> one Refinery29 article that's like, it always gets served to me for some reason. And it's always like 10 engagement rings for the offbeat bride. And I think <laughs> it's so funny because it's like offbeat, 
offbeat bride. Like there's something still that's like, it like ascribes to patriarchy, but like not that much. And it's like trying to break free. And I feel like that really sums me up. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. You offbeat thing, you. Um, Okay. Words, words to live by or favorite quote. Oh, wow. Um, My favorite quote is from Ira Glass. He says, uh, nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone had told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there's this gap. For the first couple of years you make stuff, it's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we wanted to have. We all go through this. And if you are just starting out or you are still in this phase, you got to know that it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you finish one piece. It's only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. And I took longer to figure out how to do this than anyone I've ever met. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You just got to fight your way through. I love it. Uh, And now what is your favorite aspect of your work? I think that I'm a little cheesy and I like that because I think that's when I'm being my truest. I like that too. A little bit of cheese is highly underrated in my world. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your favorite drink? Um, On the subject of Berlin, a club mate and vodka. I don't know what that is. What is it? It's like an it's like an iced tea, but it's like it, it's a specific brand of iced tea, and they pour the vodka like directly into the the glass bottle. Okay, what's your favorite movie or book? My favorite book is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, three mm-hmm. people you want at your dinner party, and why? And these people can be dead, alive, or fictional. Honestly, like my three best friends, probably. That's so nice. You you know, you're mm-hmm. not wanting for anything. That's perfect. Um, mm-hmm. When you're not working, we'll find you where? I'm like never not working, especially right now with this book launch. But <laughs> I mean, you'll, you'll find me on the couch, like watching bad TV with my partner because we've watched everything that exists. Sounds perfect. Um, And lastly, what is your advice for someone looking to improve their understanding of bisexuality? Start asking questions and hopefully that will never stop. I love it, Jen. Um, You know, your book, as I said, a delight to read. I'm loving it. Everyone get greedy. It comes out next month. Thank you so much for being on the Progressivist podcast and, uh, you know, happy bye week. Happy bye week to you. Thanks for listening to The Progressivists Podcast. Today's show is hosted by Joe Lorenz and brought to you by The Progressivists, the social movement dedicated to climate, civil, and racial justice. If you've enjoyed today's show, please remember to follow or subscribe to the Progressivist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram, or if you'd like to learn more about today's guest, please head to our website, www.theprogressivist.com.